according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2. We're rapidly approaching Philippians chapter 3, actually. We're not far from the end of the chapter. Looking at Timothy and looking at Epaphroditus. I've been waiting for a couple years now to get to Philippians 3.2. It says, beware of the dogs. So, look forward to that. We're not quite there tonight, though. We're still dealing with Epaphroditus and risking his life and all the things associated with that. So, uh, Philippians chapter 2, as we get started, before we do begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the blessings we have this evening to assemble together. We do have some folks that uh, could not be with us tonight because of things uh, you're choosing to test them with this evening. So thank you for that, uh, for your faithfulness in uh, designing all of these testings for the uh, building up of our faith and the glorification of your Son. We do thank you now tonight for the uh, scriptures that, uh, that are so powerful and alive and powerful, Father, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so uh, pierce where it needs to go tonight uh, to glorify your Son. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will take a few minutes for questions and answers. Microphone runner is ready to go. So uh, who would like to have the leadoff question for this evening? Bill, no questions tonight? You had one this morning. I forgot what it was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy that was holding on to the horns of the altar because he thought that would keep Solomon from killing him. And it didn't work. Yeah. Right. Let's get a microphone over there, please. All right. There we go. Yeah, the, the question about clinging to the altar as some kind of a sanctuary, some kind of a refuge, I think. There's, there's nothing in the Old Testament that would give any indication that a Jewish person could run into the tabernacle or run into the temple and, and as if it was, you know, base, you know, I'm safe from being tagged or something, you know. Because literally there, was, there were cities of refuge. There were cities of refuge that were provided for the manslayer who could flee there long enough to stand for an honest trial. But the idea of holding on to the horns of the altar to me is just blasphemous. And he should have been struck dead just for, for touching the altar. He wasn't a priest or a Levite. He had no business even being there. Also this morning uh, when you're talking about um, law and principle, um, how do we differentiate between the two? And how do we, um, well, I guess basically how do, you, how do we differentiate the, the two and apply mm-hmm. the, the difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's good. In fact, I think it's useful. Um, Pastor Theme used to develop it into doctrines, promises, and principles, right? And so uh, doctrines are, are the teachings, promises are what they sound like, God's promises. And then principles, principles are generalizations. Principles are like wisdom literature in Proverbs and Psalms and other places. And so with principles, you have kind of a rule of thumb. You have a, a generalization of how things normally go. 
Train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a, it's a principle of, of wisdom and, and, and so forth. And of course, every principle has exceptions. And, the, and there's always uh, angelic conflict that, that comes in, and there's other things that would, that, uh, that, you know, where the general principle does not hold true for a season or for a time. And, and that's really vital to know because a lot of people hold on to principles and claim them like they're promises. And then they get, uh, they lose their faith. They get upset. They get mad at God when they think, well, I did this and God, you didn't do that. And that's because they're misapplying a principle and they're claiming it as a promise. Uh, something else I think that happens is when people claim a promise, but the promise wasn't made with them. The promise was made with Israel, for example. Or the promise was made with, with another party. And, and if you're not party to the promise, then you can't claim that promise. You don't, God doesn't have a, 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 you don't have an obligation or God doesn't have a duty to, to fulfill his promise that he made with somebody else and, and to fulfill that with you. Uh, there's no, that's a misapplication as well. So doctrines, promises, and principles. And, and really, uh, it is, a, it is a, a blessing. I think it's a mark of growth when you can rightly divide the word of truth and, and tell the difference between them uh, as far as that goes. And there's no, I was going to say, how do I know if it's a promise or a principle? Uh, generally speaking, it's the wisdom literature that's just full of principles. And then, uh, whereas the specific narrative covenant language of the Old Testament and the New Testament is where you have your specific promises. So does that help? Yeah. So I think it it's, could also be where they make a principle, a law, kind of like what we were talking about this morning in First uh, Timothy 2, where it says, you know, talking about a woman braiding her hair and, and so forth and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, that's not saying, women, you can't braid your hair, but at least that's how I take it. But it's more of a, a principle, don't let that be your crowning glory, basically. And in the New Testament, by the way, when you're living in the age of grace, anytime you take a principle and you make a lot of it, that's legalism, <laughs> right? And, and you, you start enforcing it on somebody else, you're making them obey the law that you invented, when you uh, turned a principle into a commandment or into a law, then and that's, that's church-age legalism. And, and then that's when you, it goes back to where now you're held accountable if you, you know, commit what you thought was a sin or break a law, then if you thought it was a sin and you commit that sin, even though it really wasn't a sin, right. you are so now held accountable. It's a sin. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Robert has a question up here in the front row. So obviously we're not subject to the Old Testament laws, for instance. Uh, we don't have, we're not supposed, we can cut our hair on the sides of our head and all those things, mm-hmm. but... We can all, eat pork. Huh? We can eat pork. We can eat pork. Yeah. Um, but we can get applications, mm-hmm. to develop applications from Scripture that doesn't directly apply to us. Oh, so all we, the time, yeah, as principles. Yeah, we as, view as, it a as a principle. Right. So even though, for instance, in Lamentations it talked, this I recall to mind, great is thy faithfulness and everything. His faithfulness is, is true for us, even though that specific one is for Israel. Yes. So I just wanted to amplify Right, right. Bit. And we do, we do it a lot. We do it a lot. And, and I don't think it's, and we want to be careful as we do it, but if, if it agrees with other realms of Scripture and it's not, doesn't violate other Scriptures, I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, but, but it is worth asking. Okay, so here's a puzzle for you. Uh, in Jeremiah it says, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your, uh, not for your uh, calamity, but for your blessing, that you may have a future, you may have a hope, right? That's not to us. And yet a lot of people claim it. 
Or if my people which are called by my name will pray towards my holy temple, then I will heal their land and forgive them. That's, that's not a promise he made to the United States of America, right? And so there's a lot of that that happens, and we want to be careful if we are making a secondary application that we have the appropriate parameters and context and, and recognition of what we're doing on a, on a secondary basis. And I think that sometimes is useful too. When, when Jeremiah and Lamentation says, morning by morning, new mercies I see, great is thy faithfulness. You know, it's one of my favorite Christian hymns, but Jeremiah saw mercies renewed morning by morning. Do I expect I'm going to see mercies renewed morning by morning? And I think I am, but I want to find other passages to sustain that, not just the one reference in Lamentations 3. So um, anyway, that's, that's another, another question as it relates to how do we adapt passages that are not written to us? And yet, clearly, there is there is a fulfillment in, in our perspective. So, right, yeah, great is thy faithfulness; he's eternally faithful. So it doesn't matter, yeah, it doesn't matter what testament it's written in; he is eternally faithful. Right. Any other questions tonight? What else is on your mind? I know there's a lot going on. There's a lot of conflict that's raging. We were dealing with some issues uh, over the recent days that I was happy to share with the, the men this morning in our training class this morning, and how much of secular feminism has actually now crept into evangelical churches and uh, all in the embraced, fully embraced by some evangelical leaders. And is, is, if it's, is feminism better as long as it's churchy? You know, uh, we, we don't want to go into the secular liberal side of things, but you know, can we have, is there a form of it that's not so bad? Or is it a poison that's even infecting where too many evangelical churches are now completely feminized and, and men, men don't want any part of that, you know, as far as men want reality, they want, they want truth. And uh, so anyway, it was a, it's been an interesting series of articles and a Southern Baptist uh, president just got fired and some things that, uh, that they found on a website. And Anyway, there's a lot of scandal going on right now at the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm curious to see what the next step is going to be, what the next step is going to be as, as the evangelical Me Too movement jumps on board with, with what they're doing. So, Anyway, pray for that too. Uh, back to Bill again. We'll give Bill another question, unless there's anyone else with a question tonight. Going back to that feminism and uh, going back to uh, uh, First Timothy 2, mm-hmm. it talks about... Uh, women being submissive and, and, and things like that. Well, 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. For it was first Eve who was, for it was not Eve who was first created, but Adam was first created, then Eve, and uh, it was Eve who was deceived. And that's specifically stated there for the prohibition on, on women pastors. Yes, sir. What verses um, can we use to show women that they're not considered lesser, you know, that as, and as we spoke that, as I had said earlier this morning, that there's great strength in being able to be submissive. Mm-hmm. You know what I like to do? My favorite, I go to the deity of Christ. I go to Jesus because he was, he was fully God, equal to the father, equal to the Holy Spirit. And yet he was delighted in submitting to the father saying, not my will, but thine be done. And and his teaching was not his own, but the Father's who sent him. And he came not to do his own works, but the, the will of, of God who sent me. And so in, in Jesus, we have the ultimate example of pure equality, completely deity co-equal with the Father. I and the Father are one, yet he consistently subjected again and again and again himself to the Father. So it's, it's not, um, 
The world says that if you submit, you're inferior, but that's, 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 that's a non sequitur. It does not follow logically and does not follow biblically. And so um, that's what I like to do. Maybe other people have other things they like to do, but that's what I like to do in terms of that. Is there are different roles, there are different functions, there are different designs, and, uh, and, and so in fulfilling your role for the glory of Jesus Christ, there you have it. And since the husband and wife are supposed to portray Christ in the church, if you flip that upside down, you know how blasphemous that is? If, if you have women that are ministering the Word of God to men, like, wait a minute, what are we trying to say? Are we saying that are we saying that the bride somehow cleanses Jesus? Because Ephesians 5 says it's Jesus that cleanses the church with, through the washing of water with the Word. And so the, uh, the, the, the pattern is clear. And I think if we, if we flip that upside down, it's, uh, it's terribly destructive in the, uh, in the church age. So that's, what I, that's how I like to approach it. Anyway. All right, well then let's get to uh, Philippians 2. Thank you, Chris. Remember, we're dealing with these travel plans and uh, the hope to send Timothy in verses 19 through 24, and then the necessity to send Epaphroditus in uh, verses 25 through 30. And that's really where we are dealing with Epaphroditus. And so uh, this is point five in the outline. Even before Timothy's intended mission, Paul considered it necessary to return Epaphroditus to Philippi. And it is. Um, the, the vocabulary here, I didn't put it in the study, but the, the language of, of need, the language of necessity, the language of have to is, uh, is clear. And we all deal with this. We all have have tos in life. And that's true in marriage and family and in ministry and in all kinds of things. There are things that we have to do. And sometimes whether we absolutely have to or not, we will think of them in those terms. And maybe it's not an absolute necessity but as far as I'm concerned, it's an absolute necessity, all right? And that's, uh, that comes down to it. And uh, so we're dealing with it here. Uh, Epaphroditus, under point A, we talked about his five titles, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. Uh, had to focus on why does that say apostolos instead of angelos, or, or another word for messenger that we might have. And uh, for minister, why is it liturgos instead of, instead of diakonos or doulos or something along those lines. And so those are the things that really stick out as an apostolic messenger that he was commissioned, commissioned. And, uh, and I think that's interesting. And, and even uh, there's no reason why it could not be binding to this day. There's no reason why this function would be limited to the first century or limited to the, the charismatic age of the, the foundation of the church. I, I think it's quite natural even on into this day and age in which a local church could commission a representative to go forth and, uh, and be a missionary or, be, uh, or have some other uh, thing that they're doing in cooperation with other churches, for example, and, uh, and aspects there. So um, it is interesting. He's not an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he is an apostle of Philippi, an apostle of the church of the saints that are at Philippi, because they're the ones that commissioned him. They're the ones that sent him forth. And, uh, and I find that interesting. I think that's a good biblical foundation for our modern practice of, of missions as we have it today. And then also the term for minister, it is a server minister, and it is a liturgical service. And so it's a priestly service. It is a worship service that uh, Epaphroditus is engaged in. And it's a worship service that doesn't have praise choruses or doesn't have, uh, it's a worship service that is uh, traveling to Ephesus with money. 
and paying for Paul's needs and ministering to Paul's needs and serving Paul's needs. And as a server minister, you could think of this as like a, uh, an aide-de-camp or some kind of, a, of an aide that you would have, for example. Uh, the, the ministry that I had to my first sergeant during Desert Storm because uh, I was his driver and I was in charge of the tent and the baggage and, and uh, the, the stove and the, uh, just, just everything, laundry and, and all the things. And basically uh, I was the, you know, um, Mr. French, is that the, the butler character from the, you know what I'm talking about? That TV show from the 1970s or whatever. But that was, uh, that was my role and I was the butler and I was the maid and I was the uh, driver and, and as far as rolling out the sleeping bag and, and checking it for scorpions and, and all the other stuff with the tent and the laundry and the and everything else. So um, think about it. Joshua was Moses' attendant from his youth. And, uh, and so, you know, it's just, that's the, that's the model, that's the pattern. And, uh, and it's a tremendous advantage, a tremendous benefit. And you learn, you learn by eavesdropping <laughs> and observing and all kinds of things as far as uh, leadership skills and then the things that you observe day in and day out, um, you know, hour after hour and, uh, and all the rest. And so serving Paul's needs and, uh, and what a privilege. It's not demeaning, it's not insulting, it's not slavery, it's not, uh, it's not anything of the sort. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege to be an attendant. As I think of uh, John the Baptist who counted it an honor to be the forerunner and said he must increase and I must decrease and he was great with that in, uh, in those things. So um, in any event, uh, your messenger and minister to my need. He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And uh, in Epaphroditus' mind, the only thing worse than being sick was being sick and having the Philippians find out about it. <laughs> and they found out about it and then they got concerned. And then that that was a bigger issue as far as Epaphroditus was concerned. And uh, aspects there. And so indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me. See, sometimes a test, a health test, isn't even about that person anyway. It's about the people, the family, and the other people around that person. And uh, Paul said the mercy was not only directed towards Epaphroditus, but the the mercy was directed towards him especially, uh, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. You know, if it, had he died, had this sickness killed him, the Philippians would have really been hurt. Paul would have been doubly hurt uh, beyond anything those Philippians could have even imagined. And uh, and, I, and I wonder too sometimes how um, lonely Paul was, or how um, how uh, you know who did he find to really fellowship in the deep, deep things of, of Scripture? You know, who had who had capacity to cycle doctrine to the to the degree that the Apostle Paul was cycling doctrine. You know, even Peter seemed to, they butted heads and had, had issues and I don't think they had any deep fellowship just for other reasons. I, th- I think Paul and Barnabas probably did, had tremendous depth of, of fellowship and Epaphroditus would be the, probably the next on that list related to that. And uh, of course Timothy of course, his, uh, his t- true child in the faith. So losing that kind of, uh, of a friend uh, he calls it here sorrow upon sorrow. And yet, he says, therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may re- rejoice and then I may be less concerned about you. Uh, that's kind of the silver lining Paul feels that, well, he's losing the benefit of having 
Epaphroditus with him, but the flip side of that is that with with Epaphroditus local to the Philippians, that's a big load off his mind. He's he's less concerned at all about uh, things in Philippi knowing that Epaphroditus is there on the scene. And, uh, And so there's a great confidence there. All right, so these become the circumstances. Epaphroditus's longing and distress became a circumstance for Paul's mandatory action. All right, and so I think this is this is kind of reality. Things happen, and we may not like them, but they happen. God allowed them to happen, and so we say, "All right, Father, this is this is in Your will. Um, what now should I do? Given that this is this is what we're looking at, and it's not ideal. It's not what I wanted, but here it is. Okay." And so what we want to do then is when we recognize that, and, and I think it's, it's important to note, we're not slaves, we're not bound, we're not trapped, we're not victims, we don't feel hopeless about it. Even when we think that something becomes then necessary, it's still thoughtfully reasoned out and logically, or by faith it's concluded, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a despair. Okay. So when you read these words, when you read... Um, for this reason, or but I thought it necessary. Don't view any kind of despair in that at all. Because that thinking is reasoned thinking, it's leadership thinking, it's consideration. It is thoughtful consideration of what God would have us do in these circumstances. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a, well, I'm trapped, there's no other options, I'm choosing the lesser of two evils, I'm just, you know, nothing like that at all. Nothing like that at all. Because we're not slaves to our circumstances. If we find ourselves in a set of circumstances, say thank you, Father. Because is He still sovereign? If, if it's not where I want to be, just thank God that it's where He wants me to be. <laughs> and say, all right, Lord, here we are. Let's, uh, let's see what happens next. And, uh, and He shows Himself faithful. I tell you, that's, that's, uh, that's a neat thing. So, uh, whether it was absolutely necessary or not, Paul considered that it was. And there's language like that. In fact, similar language in 1 Thessalonians 3 when he said, when I could bear it no more, uh, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone and send Timothy to the Thessalonians. So, uh, keep in mind the word for thinking here is not dokeo, it's hegeamai. It's hegeamai, which means that when he says, I thought it necessary, that he had thoroughly, comprehensively thought everything through. He had thoughtfully considered the alternatives and this was the conclusion he came to. This is the conclusion that he came to. And so uh, those things are important. You know, we are accountable for how we think. And uh, when we're told to consider it all joy when you encounter various troubles, that's the verb we're talking about here. That's hegeamai. James 1-2, consider it all joy. And so that's up to you. How do you consider? How do you consider things? You know, we have... We have, we have brains, we're supposed to use them, right? We're supposed to estimate, we're supposed to evaluate. And, uh, and yet in these applications, God tells us what to think about things. <laughs> so we either think the way God tells us to think, or uh, we don't. And then we face those consequences for defying the will of God. So whether you want to consider it joy or not is beside the point. We're told to consider it all joy. And so that's a choice we, uh, we then must make in obedience to God. And, uh, and other things there too. First Timothy 1.12, God considered me faithful, putting me into service. Can you imagine that? Paul talking about even though he was formerly a, he was formerly a, a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So 
recognize this, 1 Timothy 1.12, that this is, this is thoughtfully considered. This is not just a whim. This is not a lark. This is not dakeo, where something seems. Okay? Because things may not be what they seem. And if you dakeo, your thinking can be wrong. You can, it might seem that way, but it's just not true. And um, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful. That he, is, he actively thought it through. He had a considered thoughtful conclusion from the standpoint of his omniscience, <laughs> all right, that Saul of Tarsus is faithful and uh, put him into service. And, uh, and so there it is. So it is a considered thoughtful conclusion. It's not just a, an assumption. That's the point I really want to drive home. The idea of thinking or seeming, if it seems that way to you, um, we, we can't proceed that way. That's, there's doubt in that. If it, Well, it's just what it seems. Just what it seems like. Well, I think so. Well, are, are you sure? Do you know so? Are you under a faith conviction? If you're under a faith conviction, then God bless you. Go forth and walk in faith, and, and, and that's, that's Romans 14. But if you're not walking by faith, if it just kind of seems so, and you're not sure, and there's still an element of doubt, if there remains an element of doubt, then you're not walking by faith. You've got to embrace that conviction before you proceed. And so we've, we've talked about that as well in, in some recent classes. All right. Oh, and by the way, the things we consider can be totally different from what the world considers. You know, considering the uh, reproaches of the world, and, and Moses uh, chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God. And uh, Sarah uh, received the ability to conceive because she considered him faithful who had promised. You know, some of these things may seem nuts. And your friends are looking at you saying, what are you thinking? How are you thinking? That makes no sense. And yet for you, you've thought it through comprehensively. You are under a faith conviction. God is faithful. And so there's not a doubt in your mind in your considered thoughtful conclusion. So don't be afraid to, to, you know, defy conventional wisdom. God thinks the wisdom of this world is foolishness anyway. So uh, just proceed forth in His wisdom and take it from there. All right, now let's talk about this sick to the point of death thing, because really, why? You know, didn't Paul have the power to heal? (laughs) You know, you're traveling with the Apostle Paul, there's no sick days when you're, you know, (laughs) when you're working for Paul, maybe he'll give you some vacation time or whatever, but there's no sick time because he heals. He brings people back from the dead. What a great boss to work for. You know, it'd be like Jesus. He can feed you too, and he can heal you, and he can, you know, do all these things. What a what a what a gig! Get, you know, sign up for that. And yet, isn't it interesting how, in these early chapters in the book of Acts, how the apostles kept going around Jerusalem and finding all these sick people, sick people, lame people, and you think, well, why didn't Jesus heal those people when he was there? He was just he was there just a couple years ago. Why didn't he heal this 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 uh, guy that was lame for years and years? So. Anyways, it's pretty clear that Paul had the uh, power to heal. And uh, here's a, just a, a sampling in Acts 14, Acts 20, Acts 28. And, and also it's curious to me that this spans a long period of time uh, that even crosses over the events of, of Philippians. So that's, uh, that makes me wonder. Acts 14, verse 9 and verse 10. This is when, on the uh, first missionary journey when Paul and Barnabas are going through uh, the Galatian region here. And at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. 
lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and, or leapt up and, and began to walk. You know, talk about a miracle. I think there's two miracles there. I think there's you know, not only healing his legs, but think about it. If you've never walked in your life, you know, everything that you, we take for, you know, like a sense of balance and equilibrium and whatever, I mean, it's, it's hilarious enough watching a two-year-old learn how to walk and stand and wobble and whatever. And imagine here's a grown man that's never walked before. And, and imagine him getting to his feet. And no, I think it's a double miracle in the sense there. But, um, and so he has the power to heal. He has the power to heal. And um, he did have a perspective, though, to see the man's faith, and that's, uh, that's interesting as, as it relates to that. But then uh, we get to chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. I've been tempted any time... Uh, Anytime uh, teaching uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, wouldn't it be a fitting illustration to just keep going till midnight? On a, on a night when your topic comes from Acts chapter 20 and just, you know, just sit here till midnight, just keep going and going and going and see if, if people stick around after 8.30, I don't know. But, um, so on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. And this, I mean, this is, you say, well, what, what, what a moron. No, it's fine. It's fun to sit on the windowsill. And I did that in the barracks in Germany a lot. It was pretty cool. Anyway, sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. He was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. And that's uh, very similar. Uh, my barracks was third floor, and uh, except during the winter, the snow piled up and and uh, the became the second floor then at uh, that point. Um, anyway, picked up dead. So Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, said, "Do not be troubled, for his life is in him." And when he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. And they took the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So, yeah, man, you know. So, and it's interesting to me because this is in a, uh, is in a, is in a context, uh, let's see, this is Acts chapter 20, in the third missionary journey, and that's where we're pegging the, the authorship of Philippians uh, from an Ephesian setting, an Ephesian context on that, uh, that third missionary journey. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Why doesn't he just heal, uh, heal Epaphroditus then? Um, and then uh, chapter 28, on the way to Rome, Now some people think, of course, the traditional dating and the traditional authorship of, of uh, Philippians comes after this chapter, after or during the Roman imprisonment of Acts 28, but um, be that as it may. Um, verse 7, in the neighborhood of that place where were lands belonging to the leading men of the island named Publius, 
who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. This is on Malta. And uh, it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. That sounds familiar. All right, so dad's sick at home and living with you. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. So there's another healing right there. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting, getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with, uh, with all that we needed. All right, so there's plenty of healing going on. Uh, although the Apostle Paul had power to heal, even raise people from the dead, Epaphroditus was among several instances where divine miraculous healing was left to God rather than the Apostle to achieve. And that's what we have described here in Philippians 2, 26-28, that God had mercy on him. And there was no involvement in the Apostle Paul. There was no giftedness employed for healing. And even the, uh, even the spiritual gift of healing is different too, by the way. I'm going to get to these verses in a moment. But um, when you look at the lists of healing, uh, the lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, or Romans 12, or different places where, where the gifts are listed. Um, the gifts of healing are phrased differently. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, uh, we have these gifts, starting in verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. And these are gifts that are, that are named as such, Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, to another. And now here it's called gifts of healing. Gifts of healing. So it's like there's the gift of pastor-teacher, there's the gift of, of apostle, there's the gift of gifts of healing. Right? And if that sounds redundant, just go with it. The gift of gifts of healing. And it's phrased consistently that way. Here and... Uh, and elsewhere. And so, uh, in fact, for, uh, down to verse 28 of the same, same chapter, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And so all of these are spiritual gifts, but healing is specifically labeled as a gift of, gifts of healing. And it's, uh, it's just a puzzle. It's been a puzzle and there have been uh, journals written on it, there have been commentaries written on it, there's been speculation for 2,000 years <laughs> on why is this gift different? Why is this gift grammatically described in a different way than any other gift on the list? And one of the theories or one of the, the ideas is that, uh, the, that, that gifts of healings was uh, at its inception was always a limited, finite, um, diminishing returns kind of empowerment. And that, uh, you know, like a, like a coupon book, when you're tearing one out and tearing one out and you're, you're exhausting the, the gifts of healings that you were provided uh, when that gift was bestowed. And so, um, I don't know. I mean, it it's, makes as much sense as any other explanations I've read, uh, as far as uh, as far as why that aspect is uh, is phrased differently. All right, First uh, Timothy five twenty three. 
he tells Timothy, Timothy had stomach issues. And, um, and stomach includes, you know, all the whole digestion process. And, uh, and it makes it rough, especially if you're on a missionary journey and you're looking for the nearest bathroom all the time. And, um, but Paul tells him, he says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent episodes, your frequent ailments. All right, and so there's a stomach issue there. And uh, rather than the gift of healing or using divine power as an apostle and healing him and, and all of that, um, Timothy was given a, a prescription, you know, a little wine and, uh, and so forth. All right, and then Second Timothy 4.20, maybe the best known of all of these. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. That's uh, when he talks about everybody that has uh, betrayed him and abandoned him and left him and different places. It's a long, in fact, starting with Demas in verse 10 and really running through the, the bulk of this chapter, there's uh, people that aren't with him anymore. In fact, he says, only Luke is with me. So that's, that's a clue. And uh, that's a big clue too, by the way, as far as who's his scribe, who's the amanuensis, who's helping to write this epistle. It's, it's Luke. If only Luke is with me, that, that narrows down our choice of, of amanuensis for, <laughs> for writing the uh, pastoral epistles. Anyway, um, Erastus, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus, as verse 19. Verse 20 says, Erastus remained at Corinth. Makes sense, he's the city treasurer, he works there, that's his, uh, that's his job. But Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. And, uh, and there you have it. Again, you get sick, you're traveling, you can't make the trip. It's like we came back from the Philippines and we left Pastor Cliff in Los Angeles. <laughs> we landed at LAX and Pastor Cliff was just, he said, I'm not going to make this connecting flight. And, uh, and so we left him there. And uh, Bob and I got on the connecting flight and came to Austin and Cliff made it the, the day after that or two days after that, whatever it was. So Trophimus, I left sick in my leaves. Well, why didn't you heal him, Paul? All right, so there were occasions when he did, there were occasions when he did, didn't. And it's not as if, uh, because the time overlaps. Some of these are later than other times, and some of the, the non-healings are coming before some later healings. Okay, And so it's not as if the whole thing had expired, but clearly it was becoming more and more sporadic as the first century was progressing through the 50s into the 60s, it was getting more and more sporadic. And by the time you get to the 80s and 90s AD, uh, the, the New Testament was being closed. And by the time we get to the church fathers in the second century, they were unanimous in saying that the miraculous times were done, that the apostles were gone, that they no longer had the, the power to do the, the miracles that the apostles had done. Every church father that wrote knew that they were not apostles that the age of the apostles was over, see, and, uh, and the aspects there. So um, it is curious, and today's modern charismatic movement is, is something else altogether. After 1900 years and then the, all of a sudden people decided they were going to start speaking in tongues again and doing all the, the other things, prophesying and healing and everything else. 
And then the faith healers learn how profitable it is and different things there. All right. Finally then, um, we get to the end of this chapter and it says, um, verse 28, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. So the sooner he gets there, the the, uh, the the better his thinking will be on their behalf. Then the last two verses here, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. Men like him. Well, how many men are like Epaphroditus? Okay. Well, several, actually. Timothy and others, and those that train and those that prepare and those that risk their lives on behalf of others those that are Christ-like in their sacrificial devotion to others, men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your liturgical service to me. It's the same vocabulary we had before with the liturgos and the priestly ministry that, uh, that he was engaged in there. And so point F then, who do we host and support and admire. Who do we host and support and admire? And this is, a, this is a, an interesting thing because obviously we love everybody. We were to love the brethren and we love our enemies and we, we love one another and, and we're under the new commandment to love one another and love is a given uh, for any member of the body of Christ. But beyond agape love then are... Um, what do we want to say? The, the extra mile? We want to say the, uh, the uh, double honor, for example, that's spoken of in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We want to talk about um, going the extra mile to host, to treat them like royalty, because they are, to, uh, to, to welcome them, to support them, to aid in any way. And uh, these things are interesting. So who do we host? Who do we support? Who do we admire? And then what's not stated in this point, but it goes hand in hand with it, who do we not host? Who do we not welcome? Who do we not extend a greeting to? Who is it that we are commanded to, you know, to separate from and to, to admonish in, uh, in certain circumstances? Because that's a part of the same conflict. All right? And so there are those that are, that are worthy of our support, and then there are those that we have to be on guard against. And so believers like Epaphroditus are on that list. When he says, uh, receive him then, in the Lord. We're back to that question again. What, what do we mean by in the Lord? I hope in the Lord to uh, send Timothy to you shortly. Receive him then in the Lord. What does that mean? Did we decide what that meant when we were teaching this a couple weeks ago? What does that mean in the Lord? Because you can take in the Lord out and the sentence still makes sense. Receive him then with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. You don't need that phrase in the Lord to complete the, the, the thought but it does expand the thought, and I think it intensifies the thought, and I think it, it, um, it really boils it down to the will of Jesus Christ as the head of the church, to receive him in the Lord by the will of Jesus Christ. We're yoked with him, our assignment with him now with Jesus now is to receive this guy. Our work assignment now with Jesus Christ is to bless this guy to feed him, to fund him, to support him, to love him, to, to meet whatever needs he might have. And uh, because it's in the Lord. How about Phoebe? We're told about Phoebe too in Romans 16 and verse 2. 
It's not just the men. So when it says men like him, some of those men might be women. <laughs> Romans 16.2. Now clearly the pastors and the evangelists and the apostles and most of the itinerant ministers are going to be men. Uh, but occasionally there will be women that will be traveling and Phoebe is the, is the example of that. I commend to you our sister Phoebe who is a deaconess. The word servant there is not the liturgical servant, it's not the doulos bond servant. It is the, and there were many female slaves in the ancient world, but it's not a doulos, it is a diakonos. It is a deacon, it is the table waiter deacon of the, of the church office. And uh, in, in the feminine gender, by the way. You know, and if, if you're going to try to biblically prove to me that I'm wrong to have deaconesses at Austin Bible Church, uh, well then let me get my sharpie and I'll uh, be glad to mark these verses out of your Bible because uh, it's there. It's a feminine gender of diakonos. And uh, there you have it. She is a servant of the church which is at Sancria. That's the port city just east of, uh, of uh, Corinth. That you receive her, notice, in the Lord. Okay, receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Axios, worthy. Okay, and so they don't know her from Adam. They don't know her from, or, or Eve. They don't know her at all. But the Apostle Paul is writing and commending her an in the Lord worthy. Man, you roll out the red carpet. You spare no expense. This is, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, you're not going to scrape by with this. You're going to, like I, I think I said a couple weeks ago, you know, this is the, this is the, the Omni. This is the, what, the most luxurious hotel we have in downtown Austin. Okay. What is, is that the Omni? I don't know what it is. Whatever the Four Seasons or whatever. I don't know. Some luxury hotel that I don't go to in downtown Austin. Right? And that's where you put them. And you put them in the presidential suite and you put them in the penthouse and you, you roll out the, the red carpet and it's just everything, all expense paid. Because the royal family of God is worthy. And you're receiving them in the Lord. How would you treat Jesus if he was here? You know? And I, I picked on Motel 6, I think, when I did this illustration a couple weeks ago. All right? Not that there's anything wrong with Motel 6. I'm just saying. So, receiving her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her. That you help her. We really have no idea why she's in Rome. <laughs> we really have, what business does she have there? What's she doing there? What else is going on? Why does a woman just pick up from Sancria and travel to Rome? Okay, There's something going on there. And whatever it is, these believers are going to help her. Help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. That's like a blank check, isn't it? Whatever manner you know, you can imagine they're reading this and thinking, hmm, <laughs> okay, what is it? What is it she's doing? What's going on here? We're going to help, but whatever matter she may have need of you. And it goes on to say, for she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. And it's, uh, it is curious, okay? Now this is, this is not, uh, this is not worldly, this is not cosmic wisdom, this is not the you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And, you know, she, 
she did me uh, uh, you know a solid now I owe her and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pay back for this and you know on the surface reading it kind of can come across that way but this is sanctified this is this is laid out there as you don't know who this sister Phoebe is but let me tell you something she's a hero okay she's a hero and that's uh, that's extraordinary so um, when you get a, a, a testimony like that that's that's high praise. She herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. And so that's the worthy of support. Absolutely worthy of support. And then there's more. There's many, many more. There's a, a household and there's a trio in 1 Corinthians 16. Remember these guys? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18. And even... Uh, Before verse 18, there's some other men that are mentioned here as well. Verse 15 says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. So here's a household. It's like a, a home business. It's like a home ministry. That they were the first fruits of Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And so this is their this is their blessing. This is their joy. They're not preachers. They're not evangelists. They're not traveling to various places. But they uh, they've devoted themselves. They're serving the saints. You think about a, a, a hospitality minister. You think about a, a, a you run a, a Christian retreat center. Or you run a bed and breakfast or or whatever. You provide a a blessing for uh, you know retired pastors or I mean whatever it is. You're, you're ministering to the saints. These guys would have no problem when Phoebe comes through town, right? It's like, hey, we know who to assign. This is, this is, their, this is their bailiwick. This is their specialty. And that you be in subjection to such men. Such men. It's like men like these. Such men. That this is an example. They're not the only ones. They're not the only ones. And, uh, and so how is it that you can be in subjection to believers with a hospitality ministry. Shouldn't they just be subject to the apostle? Shouldn't they just be subject to the pastor? No, because we're all subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We're all subject to one another. Okay, I'm subject to you guys. I'm subject to my deacons. I'm subject to my church members. You know, Think about this. When I say, in Jesus' name, amen... And we leave on a Sunday morning and we adjourn to the fellowship hall and now we're in a potluck situation. All right. Do you think I'm subject to the, to the deacons and deaconesses that are running the... You bet I am. All right. I'm not going to tell them when they're ready or when the thing's set up or whatever. I'm asking them. Can I ring the bell now? Can I say a prayer now? Let me know. Because, uh, you know, I'm not cracking a whip and being the tyrant of, of all things. It's not my realm. This is your realm. So when you tell me you're ready, I'll say the prayer. Okay? And that's, that's how that goes. Okay? We're subject to one another. We're subject to one another. And, and so uh, you know, if my property deacon says, hey, I've got this need. Okay? Or nursery says, hey, I've got this need. Okay? Well, I'm not going in the nursery. <laughs> I'm going to give my nursery deacon whatever he wants. The point is that we're subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
And so there will be ministries, there will be effects, there will be gift, you know, as gifts are being exercised. And, and I'm pleased to watch believers use their giftedness. I'm pleased as punch to watch them use their giftedness and pursue their ministry because that's kind of the whole point of equipping the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. How sad, how tragic is it to equip the saints and then not let them serve? And insist on micromanaging everything and, and, and sovereignly, you know, dictating as a dictatorial tyrant and, and all that. How pathetic. You've equipped them for the work of service. Praise God while they're doing it. All right. And then beyond those guys, in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. And we don't know if they were brothers or three, whatever they were, business partners or or friends or whatever. Anyway, there's a trio there. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. They have refreshed my spirit and yours. So he's writing from Ephesus. We get the idea if Stephanus and that household had a hospitality ministry locally, it seems like these other three guys were traveling encouragers. They went to different places and and found out who needed encouragement and said, okay, we're going to go there. Hey, uh, you know, here's somebody that has a need. Let's go there. Here's somebody that's discouraged. Let's go there. And, uh, you know, hey, we heard there's conflict going on in uh, Nicaragua right now. These would be the kind of guys that would say, hey, let's get down there. Mario's there. Mark is there. Rusty's there. And, and, and uh, let's go uh, supply what's lacking. Let's, let's go offer some encouragement. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Such men. Again, such men. And how do you acknowledge them? What's the acknowledgement? All right. I'll answer that next Wednesday. Or you can answer it between now and then. First, uh, First Thessalonians 5.12. Okay, this passage will actually answer it. First Thessalonians 5.12. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate or acknowledge. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give them and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love. Why? Not because they deserve it. Because of their work. Because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And so these are the those that we host and support and admire and appreciate, and esteem, and honor with double honor, 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Hebrews 13.7. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And so uh, there it is. You know, I think back to Ralph Braun and Ken Jensen and John Eichmann and Glenn Carnegie and R.B. Thiem and, 
and uh, John Miller and the other John Miller, and I just think about every faithful pastor, and uh, most of them are in heaven these days, right? And uh, Ralph's still around, Emil's still around, but I tell you, you know, like Eliezer's father and other examples, you get faithful men that have, that have stayed the course. And it's just, man, they're heroes. Absolute heroes. Third John, 5 through 8, we're out of time, we'll have to... This is good, we made good time tonight. I won't even keep you till midnight. Third John, besides if you fell out this window it'd be no big deal. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That's why we don't take gifts from unbelievers. This ministry is supported by the royal family of God, by the body of Christ. And we don't resort to gimmicks, and we don't take pledges, and we don't assess your tax returns, and any of that. There is a little brown box by the door on your way out of here, and that's between you and the Lord. And I love that little brown box. I tell people that's the box this church building came in. You know? That's just a, it's a little brown box. It sits right there, minding its own little brown box business. They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. You know, you think about it. If you're serving somebody like Joshua served Moses, he was Moses' attendant from his youth. And you think about it, and you think, well, what am I really doing? You know, I'm washing laundry, I'm fixing breakfast, I'm putting oil in the lamp, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm, I'm digging out the latrine, I'm burning, the, oh, that was fun, diesel fuel on the latrine pits. And, and uh, we're burning these things and, and all this stuff, right? And, and you think, wow, am I really, am I laying up any treasures in heaven? What am I doing, you know? You are a partaker in Moses' ministry. And if he's got some reward waiting for him or if Paul's got some reward waiting for him, you have a share in that. Think about it. And think about you're doing the support things of those members that we deem less honorable. They're more honorable. They're more necessary. And, uh, and, and Paul wouldn't have had the ministry he had if he didn't have these servers. Uh, you know, the, the, the women that were supporting Jesus in his travels and all these other examples. I think every pastor that stands at the judgment seat of Christ is just going to hand everything to their wives afterwards because whatever's left over is, uh, I, t- I know I'm throwing it at what I don't throw at Jesus' feet, I'm throwing to Sharon as far as, as, far as that goes. Anyway, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Father, I thank you for tonight, and I thank you for Philippians. I thank you for the blessing we have in uh, studying this book. Uh, Father, this is the book Pastor Ralph was teaching when I first visited in, in May of 1990. And, and uh, Father, I just thank you for um, all the ways that you manifest your faithfulness. And I'm eager for chapter 3, I'm eager for chapter 4, and, and the things that are coming up. There's some powerful things in this book. We've already encountered a lot of it. And uh, Father, the blessings will continue to, to pour forth. So thank you for being faithful, Father. Open our eyes to where our application needs to be. Help us to, uh, to identify the uh, men such as these, the women such as these, Father, 
that we uh, give them their uh, appropriate uh, blessings, Father, that we be in subjection to such men. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.